electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. I'm Sarah Eisen on day 138 of the coronavirus crisis. Washington gets set to vote on more stimulus for American businesses as more states, including New York, prepare for partial reopening. I have very recently uh, seen early data from a clinical trial with a coronavirus vaccine. New optimism from the White House. We're closing in on a vaccine. This is an industry that is built on the idea you put as many people on the plane as possible. What could social distancing on an airplane look like? Tonight, what's possible and what isn't? And this is the only source of income that I have. The special forum for American business owners on their challenges and path forward, including one owner who just met with the president. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Sarah Eisen. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Stocks closing out today with small gains, but ending the week with big losses. The Dow, S&P 500, and NASDAQ, all with some fractional gains today. The Dow rose 60 points, but had been down at one point more than 270 points. But for the week, the Dow, S&P, both lost more than 2%. For the S&P 500, it was the biggest weekly percentage loss in two months. Now to the big battle breaking out over what passengers want and what airlines are willing to give when it comes to safer seating. Phil LeBeau is live tonight in Chicago. Phil. Sarah, let me take you back to what it was like pre-COVID-19. When you looked at a seating chart for a typical 737, what you found was that about 85% of the seats were full. In fact, last year, the industry had 84.4% of the seats full on most of their flights, if not all their flights. So when you looked at those record load factors, you thought, okay, what is the industry going to do once COVID-19 hits? And we saw the images were of empty airplanes, virtually empty airplanes. It was not uncommon to hear people say, look, I was on a flight yesterday and there were two other people on my flight. And that gave the impression that when people would start flying again, they would see empty airplanes or that the airlines would socially distance the passengers. Uh Uh-uh. Take a look at what we're seeing within the last week, and this is what's causing quite the stir. You are seeing load factors that have improved dramatically, and that's because the airlines have parked so many of their airplanes. About 60% of the world's commercial airplanes are now parked. So as a result, we have Representative Peter DeFazio, who runs the House Transportation Committee, saying this is what should be done with airlines. They should guarantee that the middle seat will never be filled and that the planes are capped at a capacity with 67% of the seats filled. No more. And this is what a typical 737 would look like. By the way, that does not equal true social distancing. 
18 inches between two seats is far from six feet. If there was true social distancing, at most you would get maybe 20 passengers in economy class and four passengers in business class on a typical 737. Bottom line is this, Sarah, while people want social distancing, especially in the airplane, the reality is it just won't work for the airlines. They would have to charge ridiculous ticket uh, prices in order for that to happen. And even keeping the middle seat empty, they're going to have to raise their ticket prices substantially. Bill, stay with us. Let's bring in Douglas Kidd, the uh, executive director of the National Association of Airline Passengers. His organization filed a petition yesterday to pressure airlines to take more action to ensure passenger safety. So, Doug, what exactly is your organization calling for these airlines to do? What we're calling for the airlines to do is to limit uh, the load factor on all flights to no more than 50 percent. We're not going to ask for the extreme measures. We think that 50 percent should be able to give the airlines adequate spacing between passengers so that everybody can fly comfortably and uh, in reasonable safety. Phil? What would that look like? Is that even economically possible for these airlines? It's not economically feasible for them at the current airfare rate, which, you know, if you were to say, okay, we're going to raise our fares by 40, 50, 60 percent, then maybe we would have 50 percent capacity on our planes. But you're going down a slippery slope there because the airlines realize they start raising those fares, they are not going to have as many people flying. And at 50 percent capacity, you're going to have people who are going to be way too close to each other, at least for their own comfort level. So the question is, are you just going to accept it? Are you going to say, I'm going to get on board, I'm not crazy about it, but I'll take the precautions that I can take, whether it's wearing a mask, wearing eye goggles, doing whatever I can to try to protect myself as much as possible, and then you would get potentially lower fares and the airlines potentially would be able to bounce back a little bit quicker than they're expected to. Well, Doug, would your members be willing, do you think the broader public would be willing to pay higher airline fares for, for that kind of spacing out safety protocols that you're calling for, 50% capacity? Well, first of all, I want to say this, that flying has always involved a degree of risk. Uh, so when you, and people know that when they get on board the airplane, there's always a risk that something could happen. Now, uh, if you say, okay, are people willing to pay additional money to save their life? Well, of course they're willing to pay additional money and they're willing to pay a higher fare if it means that their safety is, is substantially increased. What people are not interested in is paying a higher fare to be on a packed plane where their health is put at risk. So if you have to say, okay, do you want to pay more and have a little bit of social distancing? Most people, I think, would, would go for that. If you want to, if you say, hey, we're going to put as many people on the plane, we're going to pretend that this coronavirus doesn't exist, we're going to put you at risk, and we're going to charge you extra in the bargain, passengers are not going to go for that. Uh, we expect to, you know, to give value for value, and when we travel, we expect to travel safely. We expect the airlines to take reasonable precautions. If that means flying at 50% or less uh, for the duration of this emergency, then fine. And as far as the, as the cost, Sure, we'll pay more. Um, but then again, the cost of flying has always been variable. If you go on any of the ticket websites, you can see that the price for a ticket can vary as much as 100 uh, percent. So, OK, if we have to pay more to be safe, we'll pay more to be safe. But we don't want to pay more, be unsafe and have the airlines say, oh, we're doing everything we can about COVID-19 when, in fact, they're just uh, operating the same way they did before. 
Phil, are the airlines talking about fare increases to, to make these sort of proposals happen, especially if they're going no. to get pushed by lawmakers no. to eliminate that middle seat? No. What the airlines are focused on right now is coming up with a fare that gets as many people to get back on board as possible. And because they have parked so many aircraft, because they've got to bring down their cash burn, they're burning millions, tens of millions of dollars uh, every month, every day. And so when they are looking at their bottom line, they are saying, we have got to make the flights that are in the air as profitable as possible. And how do you do that? You put as many people in as many seats as possible. Now, you are trying to stress safety by saying, wear a mask. If you feel more comfortable wearing eye goggles, wear eye goggles. Wipe down your seat. They're disinfecting the aircraft after every flight. At some point, the airlines are saying, we have got to do what we can in order to stay alive. We cannot continue to burn tens of millions of dollars every day. It's a continued uh, debate that we will have here. Phil, thank you. Doug, our thanks to you as well for weighing in. Let's move on to retail. JCPenney just filing for bankruptcy. The retailer joining others like J. Crew and Neiman Marcus, who have had to restructure from the impact of the pandemic with grim prospects for so many of these businesses. What could the new normal look like? For retail. Scott Crow is the chief investment officer of Center Square. It's a retail investment firm. Scott, thanks for joining us tonight. You just ha- heard how hard it would be economically for, for the airlines to figure out social distancing and safety precautions. How are the retailers going to do it? Well, it's going to be tough for the uh, retail as well. And, you know, basically what we're looking at is um, right now a, you know, a, about a 20 percent rent collection for the average uh, retail mall landlord and uh, about 50% for a shopping center REIT and about 80% for service retail. Now, I point that out because that's a pretty good forward indicator of how those tenants see their business. Uh, So as it relates to sitting in an enclosed environment, it's going to be very challenging. It's going to be much more challenging for movie theaters, restaurants, gyms, uh, and other forms of retail will bounce back. But along with hospitality and leisure, you know, retail makes up about 25% of the underlying workforce in the U.S. And there are a lot of, the, lot of those people who are out of a job right now, and a lot of those jobs won't be coming back. When you think about the, the jobs not coming back and the customers not coming back, how do you distinguish between the winner's and losers in retailer. I just named some of the, the companies that have announced bankruptcy. Who comes out of this okay and who doesn't? Well, I think your service retail comes out okay. So think about where you get your hair cut, your nails done. Uh, think about where you pick up your coffee, right? Those things come back because you can drive to them. You can pop in and out. It can be very, very quick, very convenient. You know, what, what doesn't come back is a movie theater. Um, you know, instead, Netflix just takes that over. You know, what, what doesn't come back is spending a couple hundred bucks to sit in a, in a restaurant for an hour and a half with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of strangers. So I think those, there'll be permanent shifts in people's behavior. And we can, we can see this already. So take Texas, for instance. That state's opened up. There are restaurants, but bookings are down 80% year on year. In addition, I think that this virus could be the, you know, the tipping point for the mall industry. Uh, the underlying mall tenants like JCPenney and many of the department stores they came into this crisis with somewhat irrelevant business models and, you know, a lot of problems, a lot of leverage. And this virus has really been the tipping point for that to begin to unravel. And that's important because 
in a mall, they have co-tenancy agreements. And that means if a certain anchor goes dark or you get a certain level of vacancy in the centre, other people can get out of their leases. So I think this could be the tipping point where we could see up to 80, 90% of the malls in this country shutter and not open or open struggle and then close again. Wow. Scott Crow, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Even with those dire forecasts. Speaking of retail, Kroger announcing today it will give hourly frontline workers a one-time thank you pay, amounting to a few hundred dollars for their service per person. This as the grocer prepares to end its $2 an hour hero pay bonus for employees. Mark Perone is the head of the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. He joins us now. Mark, nice to see you again. So, so we did get this news today that the Kroger workers are going to get a bonus pay. In general, how are your union members that work for Kroger feeling about their pay right now? I, I think they're very disappointed, quite honestly, about um, the hero pay being taken away and it being turned into a bonus, uh, primarily because it's going to affect uh, their weekly pay uh, and they're not going to have as much in their in their pockets. Uh, look, the pandemic still exists. People are still wearing masks in the stores. There's still social distancing. Uh, and even though there may be some indications that a vaccine is on the way, uh, we haven't seen it as of yet. And this this virus is, in fact, unless a vaccine comes forward, uh, is going to be around this fall. And and our members, uh, quite frankly, are having to go out there every single day and put themselves at risk. Now, every investor that I know of knows that the more risk they take, the higher pay they get. Uh, the, the more risk they take, they should get more pay. Uh, and these workers are taking more risk and they should be paid more. Not to single out Kroger specifically, Mark, what about other grocery stores and, and other major retailers that are employing essential workers. What have they been doing on the pay front? Well, uh, we've had several of our major employers, uh, our other employers have come forth and maintained that $2 an hour increase. uh, And they've indicated uh, they're gonna reevaluate it every couple of weeks uh, to make a determination of how it ultimately looks. Now, there are other companies, quite honestly, uh, Walmart, you know, Trader Joe's, uh, Whole Foods, uh, they've indicated they're gonna pull back and they're gonna go to uh, go to bonuses as well. Let's, let's face it, uh, going to a bonus just allows them to shut this off at some point in time when they decide that they want to. Here's what we do know though. We know that sales are up. Your last guest said that people are not gonna be going back to restaurants and I think that's a fairly uh, accurate uh, you know, view of what's going to happen in retail going forward. We've seen sales go up. We've seen productivity go up, uh, sales per man hour. Uh, and we've started to see a little bit of food inflation as we move forward, which is good for the industry. I think it has changed the, the outcome of what this industry is going to look like uh, on Wall Street going forward in the future. And I think these workers deserve their share. Obviously, it would be nice for the workers to have more pay. What about the safety factor, Mark? Do they feel like their, their employers are taking care of them, providing the necessary masks and equipment so that they can feel safe going to work every day? 
Well, Sarah, I think that a lot of our employers have, in fact, done the right thing. I still think there's challenges out there. Uh, I've certainly seen them in the stores that I've visited, uh, and I've gone into union and non-union stores alike. Uh, quite frankly, I've been somewhat uh, concerned at the number of people that were not wearing masks or weren't being provided masks uh, in this environment. Uh, it's not, if, if the virus is starting to die down right now, I don't think that this is the concern that I have, at least initially. My concern is, is the virus starts to spike back up in the fall and in the winter, what are we gonna do if we have this false sense of security that we don't really need to wear this protective equipment? That's the reason why I'm concerned. Mark Perron, thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate your time. Here's what's coming up on the CNBC special report. Cyber attackers hit a high profile target with what may be a high profile secret. The hackers are holding that secret for ransom. That's next. Plus, American small business owners, including one who met with the president today, explain how they're managing their paths forward. Before the break, what this country looks like on day 138 of the coronavirus crisis. on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. On day 138 of the crisis, here are some more headlines on the virus. Retail sales in April falling 16.4 percent, biggest on record as the country locked down amid the coronavirus outbreak. The new head of the government's effort to find a vaccine says he's confident of being able to deliver several hundred million doses of a vaccine by the end of the year. And the Federal Reserve is warning stock prices and other asset values could take a significant hit if the pandemic worsens. And the NFL is telling teams they can start reopening facilities Tuesday for staff only, no coaches or players, if state and local governments allow. An entertainment law firm run by Alan Grubman confirming its computer systems were hacked. The hackers say they have sensitive information about several big star clients, and those hackers want $42 million in ransom. With us now is CNBC contributor Sue Gordon, former deputy director for national intelligence. Sue, good evening. How does something like this happen? Well, so what's interesting is over the last three weeks, we've seen the trifecta of cyber attacks, right? Cyber attacks to do influence, cyber attacks to go after an economic target in the pharmaceutical industry, and now criminal activity going after um, 
money um, because data are the coin of the realm. So the way it happens is um, there is sophisticated capabilities that are ever evolving to beat defenses, especially when the entities that have the data are a little lax in their protection. And so it's just a constant game of cat and mouse where offense oftentimes has the advantage if the defense isn't being protected. With so many people working from home right now mm-hmm. and so many comp- companies operating remotely, yeah. how can we and companies protect ourselves against these hackers? So the first thing you have to realize is that you've just increased the threat surface, right? You have a lot more endpoints, um, people at distance working. You have a lot more access points, a lot of people using email who are then getting back into the company system. And you have companies making a lot of choices to enable new kinds of work where they may not be protecting um, and being as good at the cyber defense as they have before. So what you can do is cyber hygiene, cyber hygiene, cyber hygiene for the individuals. And for the companies, you really have to understand what's important, what data put you at risk, back up your systems, save some of that data off premises, and just be ready every day and not be lax with security just because you're trying to get performance. What, what about Zoom calls, FaceTime calls, video calls? How safe are those? Um, that's a different kind of risk where you have the opportunity that people can come in through that, land on individual networks, lock them down, disrupt the ability for people to um, work and engage in now what is the way we do business. It's a different surface than ransomware in some ways, but it is the same sort of thing. You have so many more places where people can go. So what I would tell you, if you're Zooming, never use a public meeting. Always have a private one. Have a passcode. Pay attention to who's on the call. Do roll calls. There are things you can do. You know, what's interesting about criminals is there are some nation states that are engaging in criminal activity for monetary gain. But for criminals, it is more opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Sue Gordon, thank you so much for your insight tonight. Good to see you. You're welcome. As Good first you, responders Sarah. and healthcare workers risk their lives, some companies are saying thanks in the ways they know best. Tonight, how Little Caesars is stepping up. We're donating uh, one million pizzas to our first responders and healthcare workers. And we have a, a staff, about 170 people, that are contacting hospitals across the country. We kicked off this program in our hometown of Detroit. That's where our headquarters is. And we delivered 600 pizzas in one day. In addition to our million, um, we created a program called Pie It Forward, where customers can actually order pizzas that will then deliver to healthcare workers. It's basically a $5 pizza, and we'll add that on to our delivery, or we'll deliver it separately if we get enough groups together uh, for a particular hospital or uh, police station. It's difficult for all businesses right now, but the easiest decision that we had to make was how can we give back? And we talked with our franchisees, uh, locally owned business, they said, what can we do to give back? So that's heartwarming to me and, and a little surprising to see how many people have stepped up and said, I want to join in this effort and I want to give back too. 
That was Little Caesars stepping up. Here's what else is coming up on the CNBC special report. Business owners struggling in the midst of the crisis. Are they getting the resources they need to survive? What are their plans as life begins to reopen? Plus, what one owner told the president today. Next. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. American businesses. Eager to get back in action. Some have already opened doors, even if they're still dealing with limitations. Tonight, several business owners tell us their struggles and their plan for a path forward. Once again, here's Sarah Eisen. Good evening once again. We are dedicating this next half hour to American business owners fighting their way through the crisis. We'll start with one who was invited to the White House today to meet with President Trump, Ben Ross owns Brackish Bowties, based in South Carolina. His company has donated thousands of masks to the healthcare community. Ben, welcome tonight. Tell us about your visit to the White House and with the president. Wow, uh, what a surreal uh, day it was. Um, truly uh, a great memory. But uh, the biggest news of the day, it was bittersweet, was because my co-founder and partner, Jeff Plotner, welcomed his third child, uh, I tell you, into the world. So he was not able to be there with me, but he was there with me in spirit. So it was a special day all around for Brackish family. Well, congratulations to him and to the family. But but tell us what, what you spoke about with the president and why you were there. Sure, sure. You know, it was it was about the Brackish team. Um, the Brackish team, we have an exceptional group of artists that came up with an idea that um, we could we could help the medical community. We could do our part and contribute to help those on the front lines uh, fighting this COVID-19 battle and, and supply healthcare masks uh, to those doctors, nurses, and, and emergency workers all across the nation. And uh, they came up with the program Masked by the Makers. And uh, when Jeff heard it and he and I talked about it, we just decided to put the pedal to the metal and see how far we could take this thing to help out the nation. Do you think that this administration, President Trump, has been supportive and and sympathetic to the small business community throughout this crisis? I think the entire uh, leadership in Washington has been supportive. I think we're all going through this together, and only together will we get through this. Um, I don't think it's uh, 
one man, one party. I think it's everybody coming together collectively. Uh, President Trump's done some great things, but so has everybody. So I, I applaud all the efforts that have been done with the CARES Act, uh, the PPP program, uh, and everything that's been done thus far. It's been a, a wonderful thing where we've been able to retain all of our employees throughout this crisis thus far. So, so you did apply for and receive those PPP loans. How did you find that process? We sure did. Uh, we heard that it was potentially coming down the pipe. Uh, we started amassing numbers early on before the, uh, the criteria was even given out. Uh, we have an incredible accounting team. And um, we started pulling together all kinds of numbers that we felt may be uh, pertinent in this situation. And uh, when they released what was going to be required, we had the numbers ready to go. And we sent it to a local bank, South State, South State Bank there in South Carolina. And uh, they fast-tracked it right through us. I think they said we were like number 40, 50th in line in submissions because we had everything ready to go right when they said uh, send it in. So I think that was crucial to getting our uh, funds so quickly. Ben Ross, thanks for joining us <laughs> on, a, on a big day for you. Dave Dotson is a professor of management at Stanford Business School, an investor in several businesses, is with us live again tonight to help listen to and give some advice to some of our small businesses tonight. It's good to have you on board. Nice to see you again. Always good to be here. Our first owner. Good to have you, Dave. Lauren Greenspawn, we want to welcome the owner of a normally very busy Tuffy Tire and Auto Service Center in downtown Chicago. Car sales are down. People who own cars aren't on the road, meaning fewer repairs. So how have you been handling your business? Very carefully, very carefully. We've just been doing what we can, servicing the vehicles that we get and uh, just trying to keep my guys in the shop and getting paid. So, Lauren, I was thinking, you know, fixing cars is a team sport. Generally, more than one person is at the car, and you're in such close quarters there. How are you managing? I mean, you're essential business. How are you managing this uh, in a world of social distancing? Yeah, very early on, we had a shop meeting, and we all came to the understanding and agreement that we're, we're a family just the same. And we all came to the agreement that we would come to work and we would go home. And, you know, if we had to go shopping or anything, we would tell each other, hey, I had to go to the store this weekend. Um, and, you know, if anybody was showing any symptoms or feeling sick, they would stay home and go see the doctor. Uh, and so far, we've been very lucky. Now, that must be tough, though, because to some extent, you're sort of betting your business on the fact that this family, your, your employees are all going to follow the social distancing rules that you've asked them to do. That's quite a bet you're making. Yes. Yes, it is. And from a customer facing perspective, it's much easier, uh, you know, to follow those social distancing guidelines uh, in the back shop. Uh, like you said, uh, auto repair, you know, sometimes is a collaborative effort. And so my guys can't maintain that six foot distance that, you know, that has been recommended. That's why, you know, we we, we did take it very seriously that we are going to uh, treat this as, as as a close knit family. Yeah. Lauren, we're, we're just looking at a graphic that shows since opening on May 1st, new cases in Illinois are up 66 percent. Now, the good news is testing has been up 90 percent. But what do you find from your consumer as we are seeing the case number continue to grow there? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we were just talking about this in the shop today. Uh, this week, there, it seems like there, there's been a change in attitude. Uh, you know, for the past two months, uh, the streets have been dead. The sidewalks have been dead. 
nobody wanted to go out. And then this week, all of a sudden, uh, it's like someone flipped a switch and the roads were busy. Uh, you know, the sidewalks were full of people running, walking. Uh, it's, you know, everybody's, uh, you know, maintaining their, their distance, but they're, they, they want to get outside. You know, Lauren, I know that, you know, it looks like maybe business is coming back, but you, your company was saved because of the government programs, the disaster relief program and the PPP. And I'm wondering, you know, you are out there in middle America talking to your customers, talking to your employees. What is going on in Washington, D.C. that the policy is being set by politicians and large company owners instead of people like you? I mean, why aren't we asking people like you what you need? Uh, that's that, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I think a, a lot of the policies are, are being set with good intentions, uh, but the execution is lacking uh, because there is no input from the small business owner. Uh, you know, I don't have a big lobby group. I, I don't have the ability to call and get my congressman on the phone uh, and get uh, you know uh, you know my pet projects funded. Uh, I'm basically at the mercy uh, of of what the uh, you know the federal government was able to do. Uh, I was very lucky uh, that my funding came through early on. I was able to keep my doors open and keep my team employed. Uh, but, you know, if the federal government really wanted to take care of, you know, small business, they would talk to small business owners. Yeah. D- D- Dave Dodson, it sounds like you're, you're still pretty critical of the government response on small business, even though they were able to add more funding to reach more small businesses. Well, what I think is that, you know, you look at Lauren's business and Lauren's business was saved from a government program that had elements of a good design. The problem was, is there's for every Lauren that got a loan. What about all the ones that didn't get a loan? And that's the one that's the part that I'm concerned about. And the way the PPP loan was structured so that the money has to be used in a certain way or you don't have forgiveness. Well, that's okay for big companies who have huge payrolls, but there's a lot of companies out there that don't have huge payrolls. They need that money for something other than payroll. And, that, and that's what, where I would just wish government would reach out and talk to people like Lauren and ask them, their, ask them what they need. Or watch us tonight. Lauren, thank you for your time. <laughs> we appreciate it. Up next. Thank you guys very much. A mother and son. A mother and son pastry team finding their way back. Before the break, images we have from around the world on the 138th day of this global crisis. Welcome back to our CNBC special report. Let's welcome tonight Doris and Marco Montoya of Doris's Peruvian Pastries. They sell their baked goods mostly to farmers markets and third-party retailers. They've seen a drastic drop in sales. Good to see you both for jo- thank you both for joining us. So so Doris, tell us what business has been like since the shutdown occurred. Are there any mar- farmers markets still open? Yeah, well, the farmers market they closed, but there was just one farmer market that was helping uh, the entrepreneurs, the small businesses, 
with pre-orders. And I know that there is another one that uh, we are working with now uh, that also has a pilot um, program and is doing the same thing, pre-orders, prepaid orders. So that's why they are working right now, just to. Doris, you know, you're the American dream. You found an idea, a product that people wanted, and you've given them something that they want, and each year you sell more of it. I mean, that's really the American dream. And independent businesses like yours represent almost half the employment in the country. So congratulations to you. But then all of a sudden this happens, and it has nothing to do with the way you ran your business. It must be such a shock for you. But then I understand that you still haven't been able to get a PPP loan. What's, what's that journey been like? Yeah, it was hard. It was really hard to get it. Uh, the application was hard to do. I apply, I send the application uh, through an email, and then they told me, well, I didn't get an answer. Then I apply again through the, their website. It was hard because every time that I wanted to look for some information that they were asking to, the program was gone. I had to start again and again. So it took me like a week to do that. Finally, I got a receipt number of the application. And today, while I was coming here to to see Marco, um, I received an email that it was approved. Well, that's terrific news. And I'd like to think it was because they knew you were going to be on CNBC tonight and we were going to talk about that. So congratulations <laughs> for that. And, and really, is, isn't it? Isn't this kind of exactly? Is, is this kind of loan the the thing that keeps you alive, and so you can get to the other side? Because absent this loan, with all the farmers' markets closed, what were you going to do? Yeah. Um, so we actually, to be honest, we were definitely holding on to a lot of hope when it came to these loans. Um, we didn't really necessarily have a plan otherwise. Uh, obviously, this came very unexpected. Everyone's saying these are unprecedented times, and you can't really prepare for something like this as a small business. Um, so we really were very hopeful on, on these loans, and, and you know, these are great news that we were approved today, but it was definitely a long, long process, and uh, just you know, believing that it was going to happen, and, and finally it did. Glad you made it. What, what are you... I'm just curious, Marco, what you're going to do with the loans, with the money. Yeah, absolutely. So we have uh, different plans, uh, especially now that, that we have that those funds available. Um, first and foremost, we definitely want to strengthen the products that we already have. So our most popular uh, pastry is the Alfajor. Um, and we have a couple of different flavors for that. Um, it's been we've seen great success with it. We definitely want to uh, enhance the promotion of it, um, whether it's through social media uh, or through other different channels as well to engage with our customers, especially in the day and age that we live in today. It's very hard to promote them face to face. So we're going to have to really utilize uh, digital marketing for that. Um, and then on top of that, we are also going to uh, focus more on uh, updating our packaging to make sure it's an attractive product uh, for customers, as well as any lab work that needs to be done. Uh, we'll also go into that. Well, Doris and Marco, congratulations on the things that you're doing and the innovations that you've been doing to try to get through this period and also what it's going to be like afterwards. But I've had a question. This is still going to be a tough period for you. What is this doing to your retirement and your plans for the future? My plan for the future, it's um, like I know that I already have my kids. I raised my kids and they are doing their own life. But I think that I have more years to go, <laughs> so I I know that I that we have a good product. 
So I know that we are going to do great. I have faith on that. And I am planning to the future, too, that I want to do this for my grandkids also. So I want them to uh, have this already as a successful business. So I keep working. I don't know. I probably until I have to say probably until God is going to call me, <laughs> but I will love to keep working. <laughs> well, we hope so. We've been looking at pictures of your pastries and they look absolutely delicious. Good luck to both of you. And thank you for joining us tonight. Doris and Marco Montoya. Next up, a veteran-run business adapting in the face of crisis. We'll be right back. Welcome back now to Flags of Valor, founded by two veteran special ops pilots who hire other combat veterans to design and manufacture rustic wood and metal flags. Co-founder and owner Brian Stortz joins us now from Ashburn, Virginia. Brian, welcome. So how do you and other veterans stand together in the face of crisis? What has your experience been like? Well, I mean, Sarah, thanks for having us. It's been, I mean, it's been crazy. Let's be honest, the small business and the uncertainty of everything. And no matter how you plan and forecast, you know, six months, a year, three years out, um, things change. And I think that, you know, our, um, you know, dynamic nature of being veterans and, and deploying a lot, um, you know, it's, 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 all, it's all related and we just have to adapt and pivot. Dave? Yeah, well, Brian, you know, I was thinking about your journey, you know, nine deployments overseas for combat missions, and then you come back to the United States. And in a lot of ways, you're continuing the fight for the country by bringing manufacturing to the United States, homegrown products, raw materials from the United States, and then, boom, all of a sudden, this happens. But then I was thinking, maybe this is an opportunity for you because I see so often in small businesses where a lot of energy generates very little profits. Maybe it's a time to move away from the retail side of it, which is probably a fair amount of work, and just step on the gas on the parts of your business that now are really working. Dave, absolutely. We, you know, 10% of our, of our revenue is from retail. And as that, as that gets shut down, you have to think outside the box. I mean, we can't make yeah. PPE. We can't re, you know, re-engineer our machines and retool our machines to make face masks and, and hand sanitizer. So we had to think outside the box. And what could we do? Well, kids are stuck at home. And we pivoted to how do we make an educational product um, that kids can do and keep being creative and, and build something with their family and, and learn something from an educational experience and talk about what the greatest country in the world means to them. And we did that with a, with a, something as simple as, as an $18 and 50 cent item. And it saved us before the PPP. And we're very grateful for that. We're very grateful to, you know, reinvent ourselves. Yeah. Well, you have, you know, you're listening now and your customers are telling you, this is something we want. And this could be an amazing opportunity as you build your brand, because I think about, you know, you're not just selling flags. I mean, you're really creating a brand that could be something pretty substantial over time, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, we started making flags in my garage. We've exceeded that. We've we've come full scale. I mean, we can make 15 to you know, 35,000 units a year. So uh, 
we've exceeded the garage-based business that we started, and now we are a veteran American manufacturer. So if it's metal, if it's wood, if it's you know a company wants to bring back their supply chain back to America, that's what we've been convincing people. We've been shouting it from the rooftops for five years, like made in America matters, mm. and how do we continue to do that? Because it doesn't just impact us. It impacts the timber companies. It impacts the small business that supplies you know the paper products that go into our advertising, to the box companies, to the shipping suppliers. Like It affects all of us. Well, in many ways, you're fighting the war for the middle class, right? Because you're building products that are good ma middle class manufacturing jobs, which the middle class has been gutted over the last, you know, almost a generation, which makes me think about when you applied for your loan, which was essential for your success. And it's worked out really well for you because you brought your employees back. But I thought it was interesting that the first time you applied for your loan, you were turned down. We were uh, as as much as we tried and as much as, you know, my business partner handled that and he spent, you know, hundreds of hours working that. And unfortunately, it just it didn't happen for us. And as and you know, we keep saying this, but as hard as it was for us to not get approved the first time, we still got approved and we're not going to complain that we got money and that we have to pay taxes on. I mean, it's helping <laughs> us. We could either, you know, roll over or lean forward and we chose to do the latter and that was before the PPP. So, you know, thanks to our great network, thanks to the small business council within the US Chamber of Commerce and some of our great corporate partners like Under Armour and Under Armour Freedom, like they've been there with us and they helped they helped support us as a small business and we're grateful for that. Best of luck to you, Brian. The flags look awesome. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> and thanks to Dave Dodson as well. Good to have you on board. On day 138 of the coronavirus crisis, here are the latest headlines. The Wall Street Journal saying the TSA is getting ready to start temperature checks on passengers at about a dozen airports as early as next week. Retail sales falling 16.5% nearly in April, the worst monthly drop on record. JCPenney filing for bankruptcy protection and stocks rising slightly today, but ending the week lower. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Sarah Eisen. Undercover Boss is coming up next and we'll lead you with the images from hardworking veterans at the Flags of Valor. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 